Hey, everybody, this is Jeff Shulman. And before we begin today's episode, I just want to acknowledge two companies who I am so grateful for investing in a more inclusive future. As you may know, one of the things I'm most proud about is partnering with Marty Burris to launch the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, a program that is empowering inclusion-minded professionals from historically marginalized communities to land their first product management role. And this started as a volunteer effort, and I'm so grateful that Starbucks was our first sponsor and T-Mobile is a platinum sponsor. Both of these companies are investing in this program that is not just broadening access to economic opportunity, but preparing the next generation of product managers from historically marginalized communities who care to build for everyone. So Starbucks and T-Mobile, these are two companies it's a pleasure to work with who are investing not only their money, but their employees are investing their time and pouring it into a program that is building a family and preparing the next generation of product managers. So shout out to T-Mobile, shout out to Starbucks, and now enjoy today's episode. Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers, but who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Welcome everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman and I'm the founding director of the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. And every week we're trying to make knowledge more accessible so a broader number of people can find success in product management. And today we're talking about becoming agile. And we have Larry Apke, who is at T-Mobile now, but has had a long history of helping people and organizations become agile. And so we're going to talk about what is agile, what are some key frameworks for becoming agile, and we're going to answer your questions and hear your perspective if you agree or disagree with Larry. And we have Red here. Red, it's so good to have you back, man. Tell everybody why you're on here and how you're involved in today's conversation. Absolutely. And it's great to be back. Uh, I am here to stoke controversy and make product managers disagree with each other. That's really my focus, ladies and gentlemen, folks. Uh, that is my goal in life. Uh, how do I achieve that? Well, for one, we create Q&A in about 25 minutes, 30 minutes. We have question and answer time. That is an opportunity for you to ask those questions you have to Larry and others on stage. And if you are someone who is shy, that's okay. You can DM me directly and I'll ask on your behalf. Now, why am I doing this, Jeff? Well, uh, I was busy having a baby almost three years ago and you said, hey, we should start this uh, community for the underserved product managers in the world. And I've, I was like, sure, uh, let's do it. I didn't expect much. And then what, three years later, we are now a force to be reckoned with. One of the top, well, seriously, I don't know, Jeff, if you're tracking the space, but one of the top universities in the world providing resources for product managers, not just here in the United States, but globally. So uh, very proud to be part of this mission. And I wouldn't trade it, train it for anything. Nothing. Love it. Except for maybe a couple more fights with product managers. Yeah, they just love to agree with each other. Sorry, Larry. But there is kind of way too much agreement. I, I agree with you, Red. Mm -hmm. No. <laughs> There's too much agreement on this show. I agree with you 100%. Red, you're humble, but you built... Uh, I think the first and largest tech meetup community in the world. I don't know if there's hyperbole there or not, but we're just going to stick with it because you've been pretty amazing at building community. Grateful for all your work, building community here among product managers and aspiring product managers. Larry's here to do that as well. And he's done some amazing things 
also empowering people to break into tech and break into successful roles. So Larry, tell us a little bit about your role now as Agile Coach, but also tell us a little bit about what you did with, I believe it was called Job Hackers, but I might have messed that up. So correct that and tell us a little bit about that. No, you got that right. And thank you for the opportunity. And as I look at the, some of the folks here, as far as participants, I see some of the job hackers, as we call them. And um, the job hackers was, is a nonprofit organization that teaches Agile and Scrum for free to people worldwide so that it can help them to f- understand Agile and Scrum and help them to find work. This is uh, an effort that I started seven years ago where I had this inkling of an idea that if you give people a little bit of extra education, it will help them to find meaningful work. Uh, I started uh, the very first class, even before we were a nonprofit with, I think, seven people in a room in Sunnyvale, California. And uh, a couple years later, we became an official nonprofit. And I was uh, the co-founder of that nonprofit called The Job Hackers for five years, give or take. And just stepped down recently as the chief agile officer and, and stepped down from the board recently. But during the time I was there, we taught, I think it's over 4,000 people worldwide in, uh, in over about 40 countries. We gave away, by our estimate, over $6 million worth of free agile and scrum training. We've, we've never charged for the class. And we still don't, by the way. I was talking with Jeff before we came on here. The Job Hackers continues. There's a current cohort as of now. Somebody else is teaching the class. I'm no longer involved. It was important to me to create something that I felt could outlast me. I didn't want the Job Hackers to become dependent on me so that the only way we can test whether or not that that is true is, is that I needed to walk away. There were personal reasons as well that made it a good time and and they continue along. So um, I see Edward uh, Gordon is on here and Edward is is one of the folks on the board of the Job Hackers and Edward and I sat down and he said, hey, uh, I wanna keep this thing going and and they have. So I'm very proud of the fact of, of what we've been able to do and the success stories that we've had. All right, and so quick plug too. So Larry works at T-Mobile. T-Mobile is a platinum sponsor on our effort to build a more diverse and inclusive product management community. And so T-Mobile has been the platinum sponsor on the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, where we're empowering professionals from historically marginalized communities to become PM. So we got a lot of alignment and values and hustle and, and work and, and passions. And now let's align on Agile. So I don't know how much people need to get in the weeds between waterfall and agile because Larry, you might be able to, you could correct me on this. You've been deeper in this for longer, but from my understanding, everybody, at least in spirit and name, doesn't want to do waterfall anymore. They want to do agile. But my also understanding is that so few people can actually agree on what it truly means to be agile. So one, can you correct the record? Are people still advocating for waterfall? Do we need to go into that transition? Or can we just dive into what you think agile means or should mean? No, I don't think people are ostensibly asking for waterfall, though I think as we see behaviors in in organizations, we still see a lot of what I would consider waterfall type of behavior because I think it's deeply embedded in project management, product management, because it was the predominant way of doing things. But I will, I will agree when we talk about being agreeable that, yes, most folks aspire to be agile. And for me, when we talk about agility, at, at its root is really the ability to change quickly and successfully based on our environment. And for me, it's really about the philosophy behind agile that really counts. And, and I spend, uh, I was teaching a class actually at my day job uh, this morning talking about the, the four values and 12 principles that are, that are put into the agile manifesto. And for me, that's really 
the best way to define it. Agile is to go back to the values and principles. All right. So people could go read those. Maybe you could quickly tell them where they could find the Agile Manifesto. And then maybe you could highlight some of the most controversial or some of the just a few of the most important pieces where you see people failing to live up to that manifesto. Yeah, I, I do so briefly because I don't want to bore people with it. If, if you want to be bored with it, you can probably take one of my classes. But the Agile Manifesto is easy to find. You can certainly Google Agile Manifesto and, and you'll find it. There's still a, a website that is, I think they put together the week after that they did this back in 2001. And it, it looks like that. But the words in it are pretty interesting because it talks about discovering new ways of doing work by actually doing the work and then helping people, uh, other people to do it. And it talks about four values. And those values are uh, people and in interactions over processes and tools, not following a, a plan, but having ability to collaborate. So communication and collaboration, you should, you should think I'd know all these off the top of my head, but those are the two of the, the four values. I don't think there's anything in them actually that's controversial. I think what I've found in my practice is that Agile to me is about seeing the world differently. And I, I spent a lot of time talking about that in my class and in my practice as an agile coach is in, in order for us to behave and think differently, we have to see the world differently. So I present agile in, in my class as a, as a series of mental models and lenses that help us to understand what I'm going to refer to as objective reality, the reality that exists outside of our individual perception. And I talk a lot about those mental models and lenses being different in the agile world than they are in the uh, waterfall world. So what are those waterfall tendencies that even companies or organizations or teams that profess to want to be agile, what are those tendencies that you've seen creep up? And how do you, if you're accidentally having those tendencies, how do you recognize it yourself? I'm going to take a short diversion, which uh, folks who know me uh, have a tendency to do. It's probably an occupational hazard. I didn't talk enough about the four values, 12 principles, because I think it would take too long. At one point in time, I figured somebody like you was going to ask me this question. It's not the first time I've been asked it, actually. I created something that I call the golden rule of agile, which I tried my best to take those four values and 12 principles and put them into something that's uh, a little bit easier and more pithy. And that golden rule of agile is something like this. We deliver the optimal value to our customers in the shortest possible time. And that to me, if you take all the four values and 12 principles, uh, I think that aligns pretty well with the thinking behind agility. It's about value. It's about our customers and it's about time. The biggest problems that you see with waterfall is something that a lot of folks might've heard before, which is cost of delay. It takes a long time before we're delivering value to our customers. So waterfall at its very basis uh, kind of conflicts with this thing that I call the agile golden rule. That's the biggest problem that I see. But I think it's one of the other problems with waterfall is it's, it's fairly intuitive. I think as human beings, we're kind of drawn to it. And agile to a certain extent is counterintuitive. All right, so a bunch of questions. I love that golden rule makes it super simple for us to process and talk about here on a podcast. Who's responsibility is it to drive agile? Like, is it the project manager? Is it the product manager? Is it engineers? So in your view, who do you think is responsible for really driving an organization or a team to be agile? If I had my way, I I'm going to just put it under one word and I call that leadership. I think that the leadership of an organization has to be very, very uh, deliberate in saying, yes, agility is something that we desire as a company. Uh, it is something that gives us a business value. It, it gives us an edge. 
And because of that, we are going to support and lead our organization into understanding agility and actually pursuing agility. So I, I don't see it as, as a, a single a role or individual. I see it as embedded in the DNA of a company because it is a competitive business advantage to be able to you know, follow this golden rule that I speak of. And so do you have any common misperceptions about what it means to be agile? You know, people who say, hey, we're agile, and you're looking at them and saying, no, come on, that's you're not. So are there any common misperceptions or mistakes that you see people make? Yeah, there's a lot of them. At one point in time, I, did a, I used to do a talk that was the 10 Agile and Scrum myths, and I don't remember all exactly what I had and put into that talk. But a lot of folks confuse the concept of agility, which is kind of a philosophy, with the frameworks that we try to use to, to achieve agility. So most people are probably familiar with, with Scrum, which is something that we actually teach in the, in the class that I put together. But Scrum is merely a framework that helps you to hopefully achieve agility. And there's a lot of good reasons why uh, folks would implement Scrum as a way to become agile. I would say if I had to take the biggest thing is people think that agile is something that you do. So when I talk to them, they say, well, the, the agile methodology, well, there isn't a single methodology. Agile isn't something that you do. It's something that you are. It's a matter of being as opposed to, to necessarily doing. So we sometimes confuse the ceremony and the things that we do in the process with the philosophy. And I think that's where we very often run into huge, huge problems. And there's a couple that, you know, eventually I, I created some app keys laws of, uh, of agile transformation. You probably find them somewhere on the internet, but one of the ones is your ability to be successful with an agile transformation is generally inversely proportional to the number of people who think they already know what agile is, because there are so many misconceptions and so much confusion between what we do and what agile itself is. So, you know, like safe and these and scrum and these ways of these processes, have you seen the discrepancy between the philosophy and the frameworks themselves? Like, I guess what I'm trying to understand is, can somebody do the frameworks without really fully understanding and adopting the philosophy and still be agile, but not the other way around? Or, yeah, I don't know if that's a fully formed question, but have you seen that just, you know, adhering to the frameworks and the processes of, that are there going awry versus really embracing the philosophy? And, and maybe you could explain. I understand kind of the nature of your question. The first of the values says people and interactions over processes and tools. And when, when we look at, at things like frameworks, even though they're, they're lightweight, they're still, I think, akin to processes. And when we focus, uh, to me, it's always about, you know, lenses and focus and perception of the world. So uh, for me, that, that that is what's primary. So it's like a magician is what I was telling the class this morning. The magician tells you to look over here while they're doing something else with their hand that you're not looking at. When we don't focus on what's most important, we have a huge opportunity cost to not focusing on what's important, what's most important. And when we focus on processes and tools and frameworks, as opposed to focusing on the philosophy and the why behind what we're doing, I think we lose a lot. I think that it's very human nature for us to do that. I keep talking about you know, how agile is sometimes counterintuitive. I think it's very much human nature to say, what do I have to do differently? How do I behave differently? I think one of the things that we don't spend enough time with, and I think we need to have kind of a balance between how we think, what we perceive, and how we act 
is that we over-index on how we act. And, and I'd like to bring a little bit more balance into how we perceive the world, because those three things are really tied up into each other. We can change the way we think and the world that we see by the way we behave. And we can change the way we think and behave by changing how we see the world. So I just tend to think that it's probably, uh, since we ignore how we see the world most of the time, that that's probably where I'm going to spend most of my time as an agile coach. Doesn't that feel ironic that the first uh, principle, as you described, doesn't that kind of conflict with all of the certifications that and the process skills that people are, are trying to get to show that they could be agile? Or is that just a incorrect outsider's view of, of an inconsistency? No, I think there's something there. When I teach the, the, the class and, and when job hackers uh, continue to teach the class, we don't necessarily certify people. We do give people certificates of attendance if, if they've been there, but it doesn't say that you can do this. I think one of the traps, to, just to speak specifically about certification, I do think it's sometimes at odds with the philosophy, is that what you're saying is the person knows how to do this. But if you look at, I'm going to take SAFE. When you get a SAFE certification, the people who do SAFE, the, the way they get paid is by certifying people. They don't get paid by SAFE being successful at a company. And I think that there's some problems with incentives when you're incentivized to certify people as opposed to incentivizing people to actually be agile. And so that's one of the, I have a lot of problems with the SAFE, but I won't go into all of them. But yeah, I do think that there's, a, there's some issues with a lot of the certification. I do think there's a lot of issues with people who say they're agile, but don't necessarily follow the philosophy behind it. Red, we need Samaya on here because she has a lot of opinions about safe as well, right? You're never safe. You're never safe with that opinion. That's that's a spokable one. But I think, but, but, they, but you know what Samaya would say, and I'm hoping gathering in my years of working with her, Larry, is uh, I agree with the idealism or the idea of the philosophy being the driver and so there might be disagreement around safe and the structure but it's the the philosophy at what level do you disagree like we're at a fifty thousand foot view we might agree once we get the ten thousand foot view that's where the controversy begins but no controversy here on this one i think Sumeya has definitely had some strong opinions that i think are on board with larry on this one but it is a safe conversation to have without Sumeya here as Red said, but um, boom. <laughs> All right. So Larry, we're going to get to audience questions and comments in about five minutes. But before that, first question I have before we get to that, and I'll maybe have two questions total, is what is the one thing that you want people who are trying to become agile? What's the one more thing that we haven't said yet that you want them to know that's important in their journey? I think the biggest thing that's important in the journey is to understand the why. I think we, again, and maybe I've said this before, but I'll say it again for emphasis. We tend to gravitate in a lot of classes on this subject and and certainly some of the certification classes out there. They tend to talk about the what and the how. I'm most concerned with the why. I truly believe that agility is a mindset. It is a way of looking at the world. It's a series of mental models and lenses. Because once you have that mindset, that no matter what the world throws at you, you're going to be able to react because you know the why behind it. So I always talk of the metaphor that I use is, is in my classes, I'm trying to create chefs and not cooks. I don't want people who just follow a recipe because, because we live in a complex, I talk a lot about this in class, VUCA world and complexity, the way we have to attack complexity is we have to understand it. And there are no recipes in the VUCA world. We have to understand 
systems and thinking, and we have to understand philosophy, and we have to understand first principles. I think Al Shalloway talks about first principles in order to be successful. Because then as chefs, we can create any recipes that we need to be successful, but as cooks, we can't. All right. I love the analogy. So we've got a chef and I know that chefs, while they're preparing a meal, will often taste it along the way and adapt as needed. How does a product manager, a project manager, a leader, how do they taste this along the way, their recipe, the meal they're cooking and see if they're out of bounds or if they are truly being agile? So what are some indicators that it's like, hey, maybe I need to think more carefully about how to get everybody on the same page of being more agile? Some of your question points to something that I think is really important in, in systems thinking and, and viewing this as a system of delivering value. When we start talking about this is in respect to that golden rule, we certainly want to start measuring certain things and the things that are most important to measure. Value delivered, very important. Cycle time of value delivery is very important. Understanding even how to assess value all of these things are things that I teach, by the way, but I think that that's really where we start to understand, and this becomes feedback. So when I talk about the VUCA world and I talk about complexity, the way that you beat complexity is by simplicity relentlessly applied. And so you take some very simple principles, and one of those principles is that feedback is what keeps us safe. So if you're a product manager or a product owner, one of the things that you want to start asking the question is how quickly can I assess what I think to be true? How quickly can I test my hypothesis? How quickly can I experiment and pilot? And I know you've talked uh, many, many times about how we do the research at, uh, to understanding what's valuable to our customers, all of these things. But the, the real key is, is doing smaller things as well. We want to do small things that have high value, those asymmetric payoffs. So being able to measure those things and being able to measure the asymmetry of value against the cost is, or as most folks just call it, return on investment is pretty important stuff. And then last question, then we've got two people waiting to get on stage here, and I'll let Red manage that in a moment. Feedback hurts. <laughs> so constantly, so there's almost a safe haven in a long process because you might be able to switch jobs before you get the bad news, or you know you could have a feel better about yourself for longer. How do you get people to embrace negative feedback and this growth mindset that's necessary under Agile? That's such a lovely question because, I, again, I'm going to go back to mental models and mindsets and perception. We need to stop talking about good and bad and right or wrong, and we need to start talking about good and better or, or optimal and suboptimal. That kind of conversation my good friend Kyle says, we're often wrong in the complex world. So I think that that's a real power when we talk about mental models and lenses and perception is if we assume we're wrong about something, we will probably put in place the things that will tell us whether we're wrong or not. And it becomes a thing that we have the humility to understand that we're not always going to be right. We don't have to be right. Let's go figure out what is right. And in my class, I talk about things like cognitive illusions and biases. And here's one that I think is really important, which is confirmation bias. So when things don't fit a preconceived pattern that we've created in our heads, we as human beings tend to take it personally, but we don't need to take it personally. Our thoughts do not define us. And I've often said that we as human beings by default we like the feeling of being right more than the actual B. 
being right about something. So we just have to bust through that kind of programming that we all have as human beings, this confirmation bias tendency. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I, to be candid, I, I find it quite challenging to have the relentless optimism necessary to try new things, like the stakeout that, hey, we're going to try this and, and it's going to work, versus the the listening along the way into the negativity. I guess you just have to take match the two, keep that relentless optimism on where you're ending up, but being flexible on how you get there. Oh, yeah. I would just say in closing, there is no positive, there is no negative, there's only data. Positive and negative are what we as humans ascribe to the data. The data doesn't care whether it's positive or negative. So I, I think I think when we get to a position saying, I'd rather be right than feel right, will be much better because then the data will just tell us what the data tells us. If we want to feel right, we're going to feel wrong. We're going to feel bad because we're going to feel wrong when we look at the data or we're going to change the data to make us feel better. Data doesn't care. The world doesn't care, by the way. So we'd be best off trying to figure out what the world really is as opposed to what we want it to be. All right. Be right. Don't just feel right. Red, it feels right to turn it over to you. Hopefully it is right. <laughs> but are you red, E, for your time to manage the stage? Oh, I'm ready. And you know, I don't know if this is possible. This has never happened, Jeff. But we have someone on stage whose last name is actually Reddy. So either they went through the trouble of changing their LinkedIn to make it so that you feel like this joke is actually funny after almost two and a half years. Which is not. <laughs> it is. It is. Or this moment has finally arrived where I am, in fact, ready. So with that in mind, for those who are on stage, one, uh, you're ready to unmute. Uh, we'll start with uh, who came on stage first. You know, I'll start. Actually, you know what? I got to do it. Got to be ready. You're not wearing red. You're wearing blue. I won't judge. But Sadari, the stage is yours. Please ask the question. And uh, if, uh, Larry, you want to clarify, go for it. And let's see what happens. The stage is yours, and you are ready. Hopefully you're ready. Ready? Are you ready? I don't know. I can't deliver that joke, Jeff, after two and a half years. <laughs> it's got to be you. All right, Gadari, the stage is yours. Ask away. Sure. So after hearing Larry and Edward, so I can speak about fraud management in Indian ecosystem. To measure uh, extent, in Indian ecosystem, almost 90 to 95 companies, uh, this is not even an exaggeration, 90 to 95% of the companies, they don't really know how to operate in an agile manner. So they mm. they really consider being following Kanban framework as a agility. What I mm. meant by is that every day the priorities change at multiple levels. So at a strategic level, then, you know, at a planning level and then at, a, at execution level. So there is no compound effect of the efforts that various cross-functional teams are really putting together to, to really build a product to, and to, to take it to the market. Because irrespective of what framework a company is really following, maybe whatever combination, 60% Kanban and 40% maybe Scrum or other way, 60% is Scrum, 40% is Kanban. Either way, a Scrum mostly lasts for two weeks. Two weeks. So once engineering team starts developing a product, they have finished the week and the organization changed its priority and the whole whatever they have built for a week, they go completely waste. So this, this actually happens in 95% of the Indian companies. I had an opportunity to work with eight companies in the, just last four months as a freelancer. And I have seen everywhere the same thing. People really know in a very abstract sense what is agile. When it comes to implementation, all people are like, you know, they're smart enough. They come from good business schools and, you know, they're entrepreneurs. I don't really see its implementation in an ecosystem in product management. So how to really connect that gap? Sure. There's a couple things that come to mind, and I keep referring back to, to, to my training, but I think it's uh, the, the class that, that 
I've taught for years was based on the fact that I've had real world experience. And, and if I had, you know, basically I asked myself, if I had two days of somebody's life, what would I try to tell them about Agile and Scrum that would be beneficial? And after the introduction in the class, the second thing we talk about is, is backlog management. And I think when I'm working with product managers and I'm working with product owners, one of the, the major things that I'm going to work with them is, is on backlog management and understanding what I refer to as the sequence of the work. We should be, if, if we go back to this, this golden rule of Agile, if, if we're going to deliver the most value in the shortest time, we need to know a few things, right? We need to know who are our customers, what do they find is valuable, and how long does it take to deliver that value? And basically, even though this is really rudimentary, what I think Godari is talking about is a lot of companies don't even take that into account, but you should do, theoretically, those things that have the highest value and the least amount of effort. There are so many companies where I go in and I start working with them and I look at their backlog and I say, why do you have it in this sequence? And they'll give me reason. I said, well, does this sequence deliver the most value in the shortest amount of time? And they can't tell me because they either haven't, assess the time that it would take to deliver, which goes to cost to delay to a certain, degree, a certain degree, or they haven't talked about the value that it would bring to the company should they deliver it. So when I'm working with product management, the first thing I'm going to ask is, show me what you're planning on doing and tell me what the relative value of all the things that you're doing is, and then tell me the relative effort that it would take to deliver that value. And let's get this backlog into a sequence that could be delivered over time. And then we could start concentrating on that sequence. And the beauty of it is that that sequence can change at any time and the backlog will accept it. That's the agility part. This is the, one of the problems with SAFE because SAFE does PI planning, which is quarterly planning. And the safest will say, yeah, you can change it at any time. But in reality, it never happens that way. So basically, you've just gone from maybe six months to a year planning to quarterly planning, which is better, but it's not what I would consider agile. The backlog management techniques I teach in my class teach folks how to be actually agile, truly agile, and change your delivery schedule at any time without causing chaos. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's how I look at it. Larry, one one last follow-up question, if you don't mind. Sure. Bring it on. Yeah. What is the duration that you are, you are considering to plan? I'm not really talking about in leaps and in, not, in, not in terms of a quarterly roadmap or something, but in Indian ecosystem, the sprints are of two weeks and the backlog management and then backlog grooming and everything happens every two weeks. So are you really referring to this timeline or? If you're doing Scrum, what he's referring to is he referring, he's calling it two weeks. And what he's talking about, he's talking about generally the length of a sprint. If a team is doing a Scrum and their, their sprint is two weeks in length, you plan two weeks at a time. But that doesn't preclude you from having, let's say I have a hundred items on my backlog. There's nothing that's precluding me from going through that backlog very quickly and assessing the value of all those hundred things relative to each other and the effort of all those things relative to each other. And it comes up with a ratio. It's a very simple ratio of value to effort. The higher the number, the sooner I should do it. So there's nothing that keeps me from planning two weeks and still being able to look out further across what could happen over time through proper sequencing the backlog. Everybody keeps using the word priority. It drives me crazy. Priority to me denotes this is what the business wants. Sequence denotes here's the order we're going to deliver things based on value and effort. And so I always keep using the word sequence because how we see the world again, in Larry's world at least, matters. And I want to talk about sequence. Here's how we're going to deliver over time. Now I can change that sequence at any time. That's the agility. 
but it doesn't mean that I can't, you know, I shouldn't, if, if you're only planning two weeks in advance, you're not doing your business a favor. You should have some kind of longer term understanding of what your system is capable of delivering. All right. That brings the uh, question to a close. Uh, Gadari, thank you for bringing readiness to the stage and rocking and rolling with our first question today. You know, you might not hear it, but there are snaps and high fives happening all around from the people who are listening live. Uh, now we're moving on to our next passionate uh, product manager with more questions. Edward, you waited so patiently on stage. would love the opportunity to give you the uh, opportunity to ask a question. So without further ado, my friend, master of scrum here in person, ask away. Thank you so much, Ed. And uh, Larry, I mean, you know that I have a wealth of questions as always, and I'm going to be bringing some from the, from the job hackers. So we're going to give plenty of room to everyone else. I'm just only going to ask one. But uh, just to be able to say, you know, we miss you, Larry, every single day. We're still going forward with our classes, our six-week classes, free, thejobhackers.org. And if you want to find more information with thejobhackers.org slash participants, that's going to be the way to be able to do so. Or follow us on Twitter, the Job Hackers. This was not sponsored by us by any means, but the check is in right, Edward? Right? Oh, oh, no, I, I'm going to sneak in and build promote Larry's past endeavors. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Very agile um, of you. All right, what's the question? And the question here is whether it's the product owner, whether it's the team, when they're advocating, you've talked a lot about value, you've talked about data, who's mm -hmm. advocating and what strategies are there for understanding the cost of delay and having leadership understand the cost of delay so that you can be able to better sequence the work based on the value? Yeah, if, if I understand the, the question correctly, when we talk about leadership, so I, I think we're talking about people who are not directly involved with the work per se, if that's the, the question. Yeah, the stakeholders. So this is my perspective and kind of my philosophy. I believe that whether it be the, the what we refer to uh, affectionately as the Agile MBA or something similar, whenever I am working for a, a company in my day job, I want as many people from leadership to attend my class as possible because I believe that all leaders need to understand the mental models and lenses that are associated with this agile philosophy. And the reason being, if you want to think about it this way, and maybe this is a little bit crass, but I love my software developers, but if I can convert one software developer to thinking and seeing the world the way I see it, that's like, uh, you know, kicking an extra point in football. I use a lot of football metaphors, so I apologize. But if I can get a VP to understand and align with what I'm seeing in this agile philosophy, that's like scoring a touchdown. Because the, the further you are up the food chain, the more your decision affects more people. One of the things that I've seen that are really, really uh, hard with agile transformations, by the way, is that leadership doesn't really, though they give it vocal uh, support, maybe even monetary support, they really don't understand it. So that was AppKey's first law of agile transformation. Your transformation will only go as far as the, the highest person in your organization that understands and supports it. Because you can do 100 things right on the front line, and it takes one uh, decision by somebody in a position of authority and power to undo all of the good work that you've done in an agile transformation. So my goal in my life is really helping people to see, and I don't force people to see things the way I see them, but helping people to see the, the way I see things. And it helps m much more when you get people who are in positions of power and authority understanding it. So I guess the short answer to your question is everyone who is in an organization should take my class. That's my short <laughs> answer. We're back to shameless promotions. Larry, I love this. 
I love this. Um, have you two worked together previously, Larry, or is this? Uh... Well, Edward took over uh, for me for the job hackers, so he's one. He's the one running it, and he's doing a good job of promoting it without me being around. So I walked into one of those fifteen-person classes, and we quickly got it up to two hundred people online, and now we had four hundred people across fifty countries in our recent um, class, our current mm -hmm. class, I should say. Yep. Red, you're going to have to up your shameless promotion game, man. Get people talking about the product management center here at the University of Washington. <laughs> I think it's, it's great. Like, let's, let's all shamelessly promote. Who do we have next? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Next up, until Jeff cuts me off the shamelessly promote, I believe we have Macron, a product analyst, still on the stage, rock and roll. We'd love to get your question. Whether this is for Copart or another company, please, my friend, ask away. Thanks, Red. Thanks, Larry. My question is uh, based on the experience that I had for the last three years. So most of the companies doesn't spend much of the time in the discovery phase of what exactly needs to be modeled as an MVP for that product that they are building. Mm -hmm. So they just want it to be running simultaneously. Something should be running in the background with the technical aspect and simultaneously the requirement should go on as well. So in this particular scenario, we miss a lot of crucial requirements and there are back and forth steps that needs to be taken and which in turn I feel creates kind of frustration in the tech team while they are building certain requirements because they have to go back and forth. So how mm -hmm. do you feel we can tackle this particular situation as companies are not much inclined towards invest investing in the discovery phase? Yeah, thank you for the question. I don't know if it's so much the discovery phase. Anytime, if, if you want agile coaches heads to spin, just call people resources and, and talk about phases and, and, and we're like the exorcist. I don't think it's necessarily discovery phase because it's it's not a it's not necessarily a separate activity and in, in true in my perception anyway in true agility. The thing that I find most interesting about your question is the fourth agile principle says developers business and developers must work together daily throughout the project. And the way they do that in Scrum and it doesn't have to be Scrum but they do it through something that's called refinement. And when I find that where companies really, really don't do a good job is that they shortchange the refinement activities. They don't spend enough time in refinement. They don't get together on a regular basis to, to really, truly understand the work with the business represented with the developers there. So in Scrum, that's actually addressed because the Scrum team is, is the product owner, the Scrum master, and the de developers. And when you do that refinement, you should all be there. So I use a technique called behavior-driven development. Some of you might be familiar with it because I'm in software. We're going through scenarios and we're understanding the work as it exists at great depth so that there's not that confusion between those folks who are doing the work and the, the folks who are asking for the work, so to speak. Don't know if that answers your question, but if you can follow up, maybe I can continue yeah larry the, uh, that helps because the refining process itself defines what exactly needs to be done in a proper sequence so yeah absolutely and if you're not familiar with bdd look it up if you want to take the job hackers class next aimless plug it's not for me it's for them okay sure i'll try that thank Fantastic. you macron thank you so much for coming on stage and asking another great question and hopefully this leads to more learnings and growth next up on stage uh we have cassandra cassandra it says you're Agile certified, which makes me excited to see what kind of potential <laughs> questions or controversies might I add. And then after that, we'll go. Well, to I'll tell you, 
it's going to be some more shameless plugs for Larry and uh, the job hackers here because I worked with Larry previously at T-Mobile. And then during the time that I took some time off and found a different career path, yeah, I took the job hackers class. And I will tell you that I was one of the people that went through lots of safe certifications, very yeah, I know. Well, I mean, you can look at all this stuff there. Job Hackers was great because it gave some real world perspectives um, because nothing is perfect and you're going to have all of the other things that come in. So I really appreciated that about Job Hackers and being able to talk to other people that were learning <laughs> at the same time. We're here to talk about all things Job Hackers. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, Cassandra. Uh, just, so my time, question Yes. What yep. is the million dollar question? Billion dollar yep. question. No pressure. So it builds on what Ruddy asked at the beginning and as well as Edward. So how do you get leadership out of the priority mindset, like that prioritization mindset of who's yelling the loudest and everything's mm -hmm. critical and it should be top priority to get them to sequence better? And what's your method to get them out of the chaos? Well, it's a great question. There's the interesting thing, and I have this discussion with I have a bunch of agile coaches. We all work together. They they ostensibly report to me uh, for, during my day job, but we talk a lot. And one of the questions is, how do you get people to care when 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 they don't? So, assuming people care, it's a little different story. But once you assume they care, it it really comes down to this thing that that we talk about a lot in agility, which is ownership. In the military, they call it mission. I think it's called mission command. In the business world, we call it business intent. The goal of leaders, and I use the word leader different than the word manager. I, I don't think people in the knowledge-based world, the, the VUCA world, need to be managed. I think if you're digging ditches, you need to be managed. But if you're a knowledge worker, you don't need to be managed. You need to be led. And I think there's a whole set of, of behaviors and mental models and, and perceptions and, and thought around that. So assuming that the, the leaders want to be led, it, it's a matter of giving the ownership of the backlog to somebody who owns it. So a product owner owns a product backlog. Sometimes you might have different backlogs. You might have OKRs or initiatives or features or something like that. Somebody needs to own that. And what they, uh, what they really own is they own the sequencing of it. And everyone else becomes a stakeholder to that sequence, even their supervisor or boss or whatever you want to call it in the hierarchy because somebody needs to be able to make a decision about that product and be able to stick to it. Because uh, if not, you will get into a situation where you're basically doing a little bit of this until somebody screams about something else and then you do a little bit of that. And you get like 90% of 10 things done, but you've delivered no value. That's one of the big things that I talk about too. Again, if you measure the right things, it helps. If you're measuring value delivered, as opposed to let's say just stories delivered, you're gonna get a little bit closer to this con concept of what it's really about. And you're gonna you're gonna sequence your backlog more effectively. So again, I've got a generic answer, but I want leadership in my class. I want them to go through the sequencing techniques that I teach so that they understand it. And I think once they understand it, they'll support it. But I can't always get them in my class. Cassandra, thank you so much for the question. Did that answer what uh, what you were looking for? It did. I always love to hear Larry's uh, perspectives on things. Thank All you. right. Thanks for joining us on stage. And then Red, I feel like we should charge a commission. Unfortunately, it's a free class that they keep promoting, so we wouldn't make anything. We're going to give you 10%, I think. I'll, I'll talk to Edward about that. All right. I'll get 10% of everybody who every paid subscription to Job Hackers. That's right. <laughs>
you might even make it 90%, right? At least uh, for the next six months. Yeah, an introductory offer. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we, we're not sponsored by Larry's uh, former organization, but I, I am uh, impressed about uh, the number of people you have who are, are applauding what you built there. And uh, shameless plug, since we're in shameless plug, Red, do you think we should do a shameless plug real quick? Are you ready for this? This is a recording of the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast, and we are so close to 200,000 downloads. So all of you who are here to listen to Larry today, hopefully you'll check out our other episodes on the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast available. Where is it available, Red? Uh, we're, not, we're not a well-oiled machine here. Oh, Larry knows. Larry, where could people listen to the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast? I found it on Apple Podcasts. I, I Googled it and uh, I listened to some of the podcasts to know what I was up against. And uh, you can find it on Apple Podcasts. You can Google it. And I'm sure you can find it probably on your LinkedIn site as well, I would hope. You would hope, yeah. Spotify, iTunes, or Apple, Google, wherever you listen to podcasts, join us every week on the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast. Red, sorry, I just had, I felt like we were just in this whole shameless promotion zone. It, it like it, it infected me. But the show is yours now to, to close up here, Red. Do your thing. Absolutely. Well, Cassandra, thank you for the question. We do have one more on stage, and uh, there's someone wearing red, so I can't. Is a secret code for anyone who's like, Joins last minute. If you're wearing red, anything, I'm going to have to make room. You know, peeled my heart. So, uh, Danielle, associate senior PM, uh, would love to get your thoughts, questions before we close out the show today. So, without further ado, the stage is yours. Ask away. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Jeffrey, for um, this session in the series. And thank you, Larry, for all the wisdom you're sharing with us. Um, I had a question about practice that isn't necessarily agile. With everything that you're changing and trying to get towards Agile, it's like a work in progress. But what can we do to, say, avoid horizontal slicing, where if we're splitting the work that's being done to deliver value for something between, say, dev resources and QA resources, what's a better, from a product manager's perspective, to get insight into the work that is being done to deliver value? for a given story. What kind of questions could I ask to see why horizontal slicing is something that's occurring? Sometimes it is like a bandwidth issue depending on how many resources are available. But outside of that, because it could also just be a general practice that's not necessarily healthy, I guess, where Agile is concerned, what can I do as a product manager to ask the right questions to see how we might make it a vertical if needed. Okay, a great question. For most of you, I think you know what Danielle's referring to is, is this concept of vertical slicing versus horizontal, which basically is saying, hey, look, I'm gonna go back to the value thing. I think it's really uh, incumbent upon the product owner, product manager, whoever you wanna say it, who owns that backlog item to understand when is value delivered, right? So the example you used is as developers in QA kind of running um, as as parallel, you know, parallel or separate entities, we we tend to on Scrum Team bring people together. There's no value delivered. You get no credit until the entire thing is delivered into the hands of a customer. Anything else is just rearranging. You know, it's like I use a metaphor of a bodega. So imagine that you have a corner bodega, corner shop, and you got a lot of inventory. The inventory is not a value to you. The inventory is a liability, and your backlog is your inventory. So until somebody buys that thing at your shop, you don't make any money. 
And until I deliver something from my backlog to my customer, I don't make any money. So when I'm measuring things, and, and measurement has a lot to do with incentives, because what we focus on gets attention and what gets attention generally gets done, right? So what, we're, what we should be focused on is we should be focused on getting it to our customers and then taking credit for the sale, if, uh, like we're a bodega. So I'm saying I would say that it's you you identify that this is the unit of value and you track that unit of value as it moves through your system. And if all you're doing is you're moving that inventory from one shelf to another, which is kind of straining the metaphor, but I think you understand what I'm saying, it's yeah. there's no value in it. So one of the ways when we talk about scaling and other things, not to get too much into it, one of the times what I try to distinguish is sometimes stories deliver value unto themselves, but sometimes stories only deliver value because they're moving us closer to the real value. So a lot of times what I'll work with companies and say, okay, let's identify the value that exists, call that a feature, break that feature into stories that may be worked by, you know, hopefully one team, but maybe multiple teams. And then track the feature being delivered because the feature represents the value. I don't care if the story does. Let me give you an example. Let's say I have a feature that is split up into 10 different stories and worked by 10 different teams. If nine of those teams deliver their story, nine of those teams look like they're doing a good job. If I only measure the stories, but if I measure the value, nobody looks like they're doing well because I haven't delivered any. Does that make sense? Yes. So concentrate on, the, I think the most important measure that you can concentrate on and, and get people to understand, make sure it's part of your organization is what I would call value cycle time. How long does it take me to deliver a unit of value? However, I define that unit of value and make sure that I'm tracking that. I don't want to look at story cycle time unless stories actually deliver value, because if not, I can look good, but I'm not actually accomplishing anything. Hey, Larry. Apologize for interrupting, but uh, yeah. the KPI we're tracking right now is a hard stop for Jeff in 60 seconds. Yes, so, sorry. I talked uh, about no, occupational hazard. <laughs> <laughs> well, Danielle, thanks for the question again and bringing this to our stage. And please, in future weeks or even going forward, if you have questions for Larry, reach out direct or to us. We want to give you a big y'all thank you for being brave and raising your hand along with everyone else today. With that in mind, that ends our Q&A portion for now. Jeff, you have about 40 seconds before the door closes on you in the other department within the University of Washington. So let's prevent that from happening. All right. Clock is ticking. Danielle, thank you. Again, I hope you got your question answered. If not, please uh, DM Larry or uh, yeah, connect with us and come back next week and we can ask it of our other speakers. Uh, but Larry, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate uh, breaking things down for everybody. If I could just get you to repeat your golden rule one last time, and then I'm going to close out the show. So what was your golden rule of Agile, Larry? Deliver the optimal value in the shortest possible time. All right. So I know there's different people have different opinions on Agile and the best way to do product management. So if you want your voice to be heard, respond to us on our LinkedIn event. Share your perspective. Join us next week. Uh, but this is one very valuable perspective and really appreciate Larry sharing it. And hope you'll join us uh, again on the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast as we here at the University of Washington are working together to build a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled 
product management community. Part of that is the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast, but we do so much more and we can't do it without you also wanting to build a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. So please join us, volunteer, uh, connect with us, listen, tune in next week and scatter a bunch of thoughts of all the ways you can help us build a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. We want to hear from you. We want to work with you and we want to build that today. Thank you, everybody. Take care. <laughs>